Today uh, really marks the end of our five-month study in, in the, this little epistle called First Peter. I was thinking this past week, it seems as though it was just yesterday that we began this study. But I went back and checked my calendar, and it was on May the 18th that we opened this book for study. And I thought it was such a great expression of how we as a body of believers really honor God's Word. We take it seriously. We look at line upon line, verse upon verse, paragraph after paragraph. And I trust that it has encouraged you as much as it has challenged and encouraged those of us that have had the privilege and opportunity of sharing and teaching this with you. Now let me begin this morning by opposing a question regarding this book that we have been studying for five months. If for some reason somebody came to you by the authorities and took your Bible, took the New Testament, took this little letter of 1 Peter and said this was the last time you could see it, or possibly you lost your only copy and they were all out at family bookstore and they could not gain another copy. What would be the one verse that you could put to memory that would help you remember the theme and the summary of this text? Now granted, there are many wonderful verses that each one of us could memorize, but let me suggest verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, So then, or therefore, those who suffer according to God's will should commit or entrust their souls to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. I believe, folks, that in a nutshell, that one verse underscores for us what Peter what his exhortation is to the readers of Asia Minor as well as to those of us that are reading it 2,000 years later. From the outset of Peter's letter, uh, he is focused on the theme that you and I are sojourners. We are strangers, aliens, scattered abroad in a hostile world, country, state, city that is antagonistic to the message of Jesus Christ. And if we live out our lives in obedience to Christ, walk the walk and talk the talk, that we will suffer. But not to be caught off guard by that. Not to be thrown off balance. But to know that it is according to God's will, as we just read, so that our faith will increase. And as Eugene Peterson puts it, as he closes out the last three verses of this wonderful book... Eugene Peterson says, instead of stand firm as the NASB uses, or stand fast, I believe, as it is in the NIV, Eugene Peterson says, embrace God's grace. Well, what is God's grace? It's His goodness to you and I, His faithfulness to us. The old acronym that we learned as maybe, maybe young people is God's riches at Christ's expense. You and I do nothing, but we get everything. God continues to love us. He showers us with His blessings. He forgives us. We encounter peace, contentment. We are given the Holy Spirit. We have spiritual gifts that we minister to one another. This is God's grace that we are to embrace. And as we embrace it, Peter says that it will lead to two things. One, to obedience. To continue to do good. That's what verse 19 says in chapter 4. And secondly, it will give us a hope for the future. 
I got up this morning and I read the front page of the paper and I appreciated Brian praying for this family of this slain police officer. And I thought to myself, what do you do as a young mother of two little girls and your face without a husband and a father for your children? And then as I unfolded the paper and read the article, I discovered at least the verbiage would suggest that this officer was very vocal about his faith in Jesus Christ. And I thought, bingo, there it is. He has... He had a hope for his future. Oh, we grieve, obviously, for our brother. And so does his family. But they have a hope, folks. And based on First Peter, that's what we are called to do. Now, if that is what Peter's letter, the theme, the summary of Peter is all about, how do we accomplish it? Now, before we look to verse, I want to run a little survey pass. Can you help me out here? How many of you have... Ever started an exercise program that you intended to see as a lifelong habit? Let me just see your, your hands. Okay. Out of those who raise their hands, how many of you uh, purchased some gym equipment or maybe a membership card? See where I'm going with this? You, you purchased a, a piece of equipment and you put it in your home with the intent that that will help you carry out the good habit of exercise. How about your hands there? Okay. Good. Uh, for those of you who raised your hands, how many of you have that piece of equipment stored in the garage? Okay, there's a few honest people here. Now, for those who didn't raise your hands, how many of you ever even considered exercise? Nobody. I'm with you. I thought about it this weekend, but I laid down and, and the mood passed. It was gone. We've all tried to start things in life, whether it be a class, a project, and sometimes we just don't carry it out. We don't finish it. And you see, learning to embrace God's grace, as this wonderful letter of Peter's concludes, is a good habit to get into. It's a good goal to have. It's a good practice. But it's difficult. If it was easy, there would be more of us doing it. So this morning, I want us to understand that to accomplish what Peter's theme is, is to have the support and encouragement of one another. Wouldn't you agree that it's, it's always easier to learn something new if you're doing it with a group of people, walking hand in hand, as a team, as a partnership, to have a coach, a friend, a mentor, a model, if you will. You see, Chris Riddell ended last week and he talked about the danger of becoming isolated. He reminded us of, of uh, verse 8 of chapter 5, that there is this adversary out there, a roaring lion seeking whomever he can to devour. And I've been here 14 years, folks. I've seen a lot of sheep get chewed up along the way. And I've seen a couple of shepherds also get devoured in the process. We cannot come here Sunday after Sunday if this is our only gathering and expect not to be at risk. If you come here, now this is not to condemn where you're at. This may be just the stage and position where you're at in life right now. By just saying that if you come here and this is your only avenue of fellowship, you are at high risk. We need to be in fellowship with smaller groups, whether it's a men's group, if you're a teenager in a Bible study with other teens, singles with singles, whatever, 
or corporately together. You see, Sunday morning spectatorship is not enough because who's going to talk to you Monday through Saturday to find out if you're living the life that First Peter is exhorting us to live? You need those people in your lives. You need models. You need mentors. You need partners and friends to help you know and learn how to embrace the grace that Peter instructs us. If you forget everything else this morning, remember this. Your life will be determined by the relationships you choose. So choose them carefully. Now, it's interesting that Chris and Jackson gave me only three verses to teach on. There's something unfair about this, isn't there? Three verses at the end of the service. But let me tell you, folks, this is just chock full of stuff. We could talk for days, but I won't do that to you this morning. It is so full, and it mentions three characters here. Sylvanus, or also the same person as Silas. It mentions she who is in Babylon. We'll talk more about that. It's a difficult phrase. And then Peter mentions the name of Mark, which we believe is John Mark. I believe is going to help us understand how Peter could live out the life that he wrote and taught and exhorted us to live out because he had these kinds of folks in his lives. Well, let's read the last three verses as we conclude this book. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is where Eugene Peterson, in the message, translates it, embrace his grace. Stand firm in it. Cling to it. Wrap your arms around it. You need this. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peter begins with the name Sylvanus. It's the same name uh, whom Luke calls in the book of Acts, Silas. Uh, Silas was closely connected with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you turn to Acts 15.22, I want to read to you just how Silas was chosen to minister alongside of Paul. Acts 15.22. The writer, Dr. Luke, says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. Now, if you go on in chapter 15 and read, you'll find that uh, Silas is also identified as a man who was a prophet and who was an encourager. And it tells us that he strengthened the brothers at Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. He was a leader. But what made him a leader? Was he eloquent? Well, we're not told that. Was he a public speaker? We're not told that. In Acts 15, he carried a letter. He was the bearer of a letter to some churches that needed encouraging. And they chose him not based on his upfrontness, but because of his servant's heart. He was an encourager. He strengthened other brothers and sisters. So that gives us an idea of some of the character behind Silas. We also know from the book of Acts that Paul chose Silas to accompany him on his second missionary journey. 
And remember on his first missionary journey, Paul took Barnabas and John Mark. But Barnabas and Paul had a falling out. They disagreed about taking Mark on the second trip because John Mark, possibly because of his youthfulness, whatever, he returned to Jerusalem and did not finish that journey. So Paul was very adamant about taking John Mark. I won't have anything to do with John Mark, but he says, you take him, Barnabas. Now, couldn't you see Paul saying, well, you know, I've done one missionary journey. And Paul was a gifted teacher. He was a strong leader. And he could have said, Barnabas, you take Mark. I'm going it alone. But what did he do? He chose Silas. He saw character and depth. He saw another partner in ministry and he invited him along because Paul understood to be isolated in our Christian walk is very risky, very dangerous business. Now, not much is said about Silas directly until you read about him in 15 and 16 of Acts. I would encourage you to do that this week. But Silas and Paul, uh, where we really get to know them is when both of them get thrown into prison in Philippi for preaching the good news of Jesus. So it's a phenomenal story. They got stripped of their clothes. They got flogged, beaten. Then it tells us, the author tells us, they put them in the inner cells. Apparently the outer cells would have been easier for them to escape. I'm not sure why. But they even put their feet in stocks. They fastened them so securely that they couldn't escape. Well, you know the story. Uh, Instead of whining about Roman brutality... They started singing hymns and praises and praying to their Heavenly Father. And and I appreciate, Bill, so much the song, God is Good, all the time. Now, that's that's probably not what Paul and Silas sang about, but I'm sure their songs represented the fact that even in the situation of suffering they were in, that God was good and God was trustworthy. I used to tell the high schoolers that this was probably the time when Paul and Silas were in prison, that they came up with that youth ministry song that we all sang when we were young kids. Uh, Two for Paul and Silas, one for the little bitty baby. None of you guys know that song? See, I could have told you that that's the song Paul wrote. You'd have to believe me, right? But the reality is, while they were in prison, singing these praises and praying, an earthquake came. It sprung open the jailhouse doors. The stocks on their feet came unfastened. And the jailer took a sword and was about to slay himself when Paul cried out, Don't kill yourself. We didn't escape. We're still here. And by the way, we'd like to tell you why we didn't leave. Because of what Jesus has done for us. You know the outcome of the story? The jailer and all his family, it says, were converted. Came to Christ. That's one of the exciting things that happened. But the, the bigger, I think, exciting thing that happened was that Silas firsthand, alongside of Brother Paul, got to experience the suffering of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Peter's book's been all about? That you and I become joint heirs in the suffering of what Jesus... And he says, count that a blessing. Because it strengthens your faith. And when your faith is is strengthened, what are you going to do when hard times hit? You're going to embrace His grace. Even and all the more. So Silas began to get a picture of what it was that Peter was writing about and Silas didn't even know at that time that he was going to be the bearer of the letter that he was going to take to these churches in Asia Minor. Isn't it wonderful the way God's big picture unfolds before us?
And finally, uh, another little tidbit about Silas is after Paul and Silas left Philippi, they went to Thessalonica and Berea. And Paul left Silas there for a time and he left him with a young pastor in training. And that pastor's name was Timothy. So you see why I share this information, this background with you? Silas is instrumental in the lives of men like the Apostle Paul, Peter, and Timothy. And probably more than we ever will know, ever will recognize. Now let's look at verse 12 because Peter starts out by saying, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Now if you're reading from the NIV, the New International Version, you will notice that there has been an interpretive decision on the part of the translators and they start out by saying, with the help of Silas, I have written, which suggests that Peter didn't write it with his own hand, but that Silas was the um, what we call the amanuensis, that is the scribe or the secretary who does the writing. And, and the reason uh, some think this is because uh, Peter, being an uneducated Galilean fisherman, would not have been able to write in the style uh, in, the, in the grammar that is the excellent grammar that is really used in First Peter. So that's one possibility, and it may be that Silas was just that. However, uh, on the other hand, because of what Alexander the Great brought to that area, clear back 400 years before the writing of this little letter, was what was called Hellenization. And that was the process whereby all Greek culture and language was introduced to any of the countries that that Alexander the Great had conquered. So in 332 BC, this, uh, this process of indoctrinating the people of Greek culture and study and language was given even to, to many of the common folks. And so I think that, that possibly a better understanding is that, that Silas was the bearer of the letter, that Peter really could have had the gifts just because he was uneducated does not mean that he could not have written this letter. But it really doesn't matter, does it? Either way, whether Silas uh, just was a bearer of the letter or whether he wrote it. What's important is how Paul or how Peter views him. Notice that he says he is a faithful brother. And I believe this expression makes it very clear that Silvanus was not only a Christian believer, but he was a valued co-worker. You see, Peter, the great apostle, the greatest spokesman for the, the first church, uh, what did he need? He needed a Silas in his life. Paul, the great missionary apostle to many of these Gentile nations, needed a Silas in his life. Silas was needed in the life of a young pastor, Timothy. Now, we don't know if Silas was the same age. Was he a peer of Peter and Paul's? Chances are, though, he was older than Timothy. But again, uh, the, the main idea here is that Peter had somebody else in his life. He did not remain isolated. So when he challenged others to do what he himself had to do, it was because he had men in his life like Silas. They all shared in the sufferings of Christ. They knew what that meant as Peter wrote this letter, but they all embraced God's grace. Now, Peter mentions two others in his closing remarks that we need to, to comment briefly on. The first is this, she who is in Babylon, 
chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. Now this phrase, she who is in Babylon, presents some interpretive problems. But let's don't start with what we don't know. Let's start with what we're pretty sure we know or can assume. And that is, the she can refer either to an individual woman that had some prominence, uh, that was supportive of Peter's ministry. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Could refer to an individual. It also could refer to a collective group of believers, possibly the church uh, that Peter was part of in Babylon. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But what I want us to note is that she obviously is a believer, whether it's an individual or a collective group of people, because Peter says that she was chosen together with you. He's inferring that just as the people that he is writing to are in Christ, that she too also is a believer. Secondly, uh, we can, uh, I, I believe, be sure that this person has been in some form of relationship or connectiveness with the recipients of this letter, because... Peter says, hey, she sends her greetings to you as well. So there's some common bond. Third, it's apparent that uh, Peter may be concealing uh, the, the um, identity of this person for their protection, if it's an individual, or possibly if it's a church, uh, collectively, trying to protect these people from any more Roman persecution. And finally, who is the Babylon? I believe that's a clear reference to... Uh, to, to Rome. Now there was there were many other Babylons in ancient times. The the one most prominent in the scriptures was the ancient city of Babylon in Mesopotamia. But there's no evidence that Peter nor Mark ever went there to preach the good news or to plant a church. Uh, there is good evidence, however, outside of the New Testament that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. So why is it then that he just didn't come out and say she who is in Rome sends you her greetings. Well, the city of Babylon was often represented both in the Old Testament and we see it also in the book of Revelation as the center of worldly power and authority that opposes God's kingdom. Babylon is often used as a reference of a worldwide domination power that opposes the truth. And I believe what, what Peter is saying is uh, I am smack dab in the middle of Babylon, i.e. Rome, but I'm not isolated. I'm not alone. I've got Silas, who is delivering the letter. I've got this woman or this corporate group of people that are here to encourage me. And I've also got Mark. Just who does the she refer to? If it's an individual, some contend that it was Peter's wife. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.5 tells us that Peter's wife traveled with him through much of his journeys and preaching messages. Clement of Alexandria tells us that his wife died as a martyr. Tradition has it that, that Peter actually saw his wife executed before his eyes. We don't know for certain. But if it was his wife and she had traveled with him, then obviously the people in Asia Minor would have identified the she as her Others believe that it could be Lydia. Remember Paul and Silas converted Lydia? She was the entrepreneur, the woman who sold purple linen and, and dyes, and she was extensive more than likely in her travels and possibly even supported the financial resources or, or provided financial resources for Peter and, this, you know, and Paul and these missionary journeys. Possibility. 
Most uh, believe that the she refers to a collective group of believers in Rome. In other words, the church that was, was surviving the persecution in Rome. And the reason people contend for this argument is because they feel that one individual anonymously described as she would have been very difficult for the many churches throughout Asia Minor to, to recognize. So why would, would uh, Peter use that phrase unless he was referring to the whole collective church? Once again, we don't know. We won't have that answer until we get to heaven. But what we do know is that it, this was a very important person or persons in Peter's life. Now, finally, we come to the person of Mark. And I believe it's, it's, a, it's a reference to John Mark. Most agree to this, that this is the same man who wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was the same man who traveled with Peter, uh, or excuse me, Paul, on his first missionary journey. And then later traveled with... Uh, with, uh, I guess, blanked, Mark. And so uh, you've got, uh, you got Mark as a companion to Paul at the beginning of the first missionary journey. And then uh, later on, he traveled with Barnabas because Barnabas, remember, believed in him, even in his youthfulness. Tradition tells us that Mark was closely connected with Peter. Obviously, we see that in this letter. Uh, the most important evidence comes from a writer, Papias, in the second century, who tells us that, and, and he actually quotes another reliable source, it tells us that Mark, uh, this close associate of Peter, got all of his information uh, for the gospel of Mark from Peter directly. That because of Peter's preaching, because of Peter telling the history and life of Jesus, that that's how he got his information regarding uh, that New Testament gospel. Well, what does that tell us about Peter and Mark's relationship? Well, more than likely that Mark was discipled by Peter. So the importance of these people in these closing verses, Silas, this she who is in Babylon, Mark, they played an important role in Peter's life. Peter knew that if he was going to be true to the lifestyle that he was exhorting the readers and recipients of this letter, he needed people in his lives. He could not go alone. He could not be isolated. He would not be able to embrace God's grace and live this life without these people in it, in their uh, standing firm with him. So the message of 1 Peter is that we are called to be sojourners, aliens in a world that is antagonistic towards the gospel. That's what the challenge is. Do you have people in your lives that help you get to that life mission? Now, let me close with this. I believe we need four essential relationships in our lives that will help us establish this. And by the way, this is not original with me. I talked with one of our elders, George Peltier, a few weeks back, and he passed some of this teaching on to me. It wasn't original with George. It was passed on to him by other brothers and sisters. And my guess is if you backtracked way back and found out who it became original with, it probably was right here with Jesus because he modeled this for us. And that's the first person that we need in our lives. We need a model in our, life, in our lives that inspire us. If you're taking notes, please write that down. A model who inspires us. Because that's what Peter had here. 
You see, 1 Thessalonians 1 7 says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and so you became a model to all the believers. Who is our ultimate model if you are here as a Christian today? Well, obviously, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I've given you an example to follow. Now do as I have done to you. Paul said, pattern your lives after mine. Can we say that of each other? We need to be saying that of one another. Pattern your lives after mine. For those of you that have ever worked on a sewing machine, uh, how do you start out when you want to make something? You just buy a bolt of cloth and start cutting and then start sewing? Obviously not. I mean, you could do that. That's probably the way I would do it. But you don't accomplish the project, do you? No, you get a pattern so you don't waste material. You get a pattern because it's already laid out for you. You cut around the pattern. It makes it easier. You accomplish the task. And guess what? It turns out to look like what it was supposed to. So a pattern is important. A model inspires us. A model shows us that something can be done. A model breaks down the barriers that tell us that it can't be done. You know, for years, people said that nobody would ever run a mile faster or under four minutes. They contended that the human body was just not made anatomically, physiologically, to run that fast. And what happened? Roger Bannister came along and he broke the four-minute mile. That was pretty astonishing, but here is even something greater that happened. In that next year after Bannister, 12 more people broke the four-minute mile. Why? Because somebody presented a model that it could be done. The barrier was broken. You and I need a model. Do you have a model like Silas was to Timothy? Who is your model when it comes to parenting, young parents? How about you men that have been in business or women for years? Do you have a model, somebody that inspires you? What about your personal life? What about your spiritual life? You need to look for them. You need to look for somebody who has already gone through the stage of life that, you've gone, that you're getting ready to go through. Somebody with more experience and more wisdom. And then you need to hook up with them. You need to ask lots of questions. You need to learn from them. Chances are you're going to have to find that person and enter into a small group, aren't you? Okay, so you need a model who inspires you. Next, you need a mentor who advises you. A mentor who advises you. Now, what is a mentor? He or she is, a, I think, a personal coach, a trusted counselor, a trainer. Historically, in the spiritual context, a mentor was a, a spiritual discipler, a director, if you will. I've got a Catholic brother who knows Jesus, and he travels yearly to St. Louis to visit his spiritual director, along with other men from all over the world, all over the country. And they take a week, and this man directs them spiritually. What does that mean? Well, he becomes their coach. He encourages them. He challenges them to grow. Proverbs 19.20 says it this way, Get all the advice you can and be wise the rest of your life. So you and I will always need a coach no matter how successful we become in our personal lives or our professional lives. Do you think professional athletes need coaches? Absolutely. Michael Jordan has a coach. 
Pavarotti has a coach. Are they successful? You bet they are. Every pro has a coach. And the reason they need a coach is because they need perspective from time to time. The problem is, as we look at our worlds, we only see it from a limited focus, don't we? We only see sometimes what we can see at the moment. We need a man or a woman to come into our lives and to ask this question. Well, Dennis, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? We need mentor uh, advisors at a, as a sort of a brain trust where we bounce ideas off one another and we get feedback. You see, the Bible says, in the multitude of counselors there is safety. If Peter is accurate, and I believe he is, there's a roaring lion that wants to devour us. You need to keep mentors, counselors for safety. Who's advising you as a parent, as a professional, as a partner in marriage, as a believer? I have a mentor in my life that I golfed with just a couple weeks ago, and he is the kind of person that stirs me on. He asks me tough questions. And he asks me honest questions for which he wants an honest reply. I need that in my life. Now, how do you benefit from a mentor? Well, first of all, uh, two quick, quick areas. You ask lots of questions. Questions like, how do you handle stress? Uh, questions like, what is the greatest success or failure in your life? What kinds of books do you read? How do you manage your time, your money, your children? What kinds of surprises have you had in your life that, that drew you closer to Christ? And secondly, the way you can benefit from a mentor is you need to listen and accept feedback. Ecclesiastes 7.5 says, It is better to be criticized by a wise man than to be praised by a fool. See, if you and I do not get feedback from a mentor in this life, we're going to stray off course. Now, how do you, what do you look for in a mentor? Let me give you three things, and we'll move on. First of all, you need someone who has character and values that you admire. Secondly, you need a, a man or a woman that has skills and experience that you want. Somebody that's already been there. And thirdly, you need somebody you can trust. Folks, if you can't trust them, you won't listen to them and you won't take their advice. So you've got a model who inspires you, a mentor who advises you, and thirdly, you need a partner that assists you. What was Silas to Paul? He was a partner. He was a teammate. He was a helper. He was a co-laborer. They were all committed to the same life mission. And folks, if we are committed to the same life mission, we need to be in small groups together, making sure we're going to end up where we want to go. You see, living the kind of life that Peter suggests in this letter is not easy. If it was, there'd be more of us doing it. So, hook up, link up with partners. Now, I've watched the younger, what we call X-generation, but I've watched some of the younger people today, and they are into, not everyone, but, but a lot of them are into rock climbing, wall climbing. And uh, I haven't done much of it. The only, the only rock climbing I've done is because I was forced to do it in youth ministry. But one of the things I learned, one of the things I've observed by watching those young people, is that when you do it safely, you tie in to somebody. You're linked up with somebody. So you want to be careful who you get tied into. Because when one falls, you've got to have somebody on the other end of that rope that's going to make sure you don't 
fall further. Ecclesiastes says, Two are better than one because together they can work more effectively. If one falls down, the other can help him or her up. See, everybody needs partners. Jesus had partners. He had 12 of them. Well, he called them disciples. 11 of them became his assistants, didn't they? They were there as team players. Paul had at least eight. Peter had Silas and this woman in Babylon. And he had Mark. And even the Lone Ranger had Tano. Folks, we need somebody in our lives. Now, God has given you and I an organization, and it's called the church, to partner up with. Are you in partnership with anybody? You need it for fellowship. You need it for accountability. You need it for creativity and focus. Thomas Edison met with a small group of friends for six years. And in that six-year period, they came up with some 30 patented uh, uh, discoveries, inventions. Why? Well, because he got together like-minded people with the same life mission, and together they met and they said, let's think through where we want to go and where we need to be. And that's what you and I need to do. Success, folks, in the Christian life, trying to live out First Peter, is not a solo venture. It's a group team effort. Mark Farmer and I went to a little conference this past weekend, and the, the, the lady that was, uh, was really an excellent speaker, but, but as she helped us understand the team concept, she said, here's a pencil, I'll give you 15 seconds, write down everything you can think to do with a pencil. So, man, we started writing down, and I got about four or five. And then as she polled the audience, most people got four or five or six. Now she said, okay, turn to your neighbors and now work in a group of three or four. Guess what happened? We bumped up to, we had 12, 15, some folks had 20 uses of pencils, uh, of the use of a pencil just because they started working collectively as a team. You need to partner up. And finally, you need friends that support you. Somebody once said that one good friend is worth a thousand acquaintances. Now, you and I did not get to choose our relatives, did we? Good or bad, they're stuck with us and we're stuck with them. But you do get to choose your friends, don't you? So choose them carefully. Well, how do you do that? First of all, you need to look for friends that are going to give you emotional support. Do you think Peter had emotional support from this group that he lists at the end? Absolutely. He's in the midst of Babylon. The heat's getting turned up. And, and, and he's cool as can be, as Cool Hand Luke would say in the movie. Why? Because he had emotional support. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A true friend loves you all the time, and a brother helps you in time of trouble. Have you ever had a person in your life tell you they won't, that they won't take sides? You're in the midst of a conflict with somebody and they won't take sides? That's not a friend. A, a friend, folks, takes sides. A friend will stand up for you when you need standing up for but they'll also rebuke you when you need rebuking. Are you that kind of a friend? Somebody said that uh, a friend walks in when everybody else walks out. All of us have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. Four characters in that movie. The Cowardly Lion. The, uh, help me out, the Tin Man. Tin, is that right, Tin Man? The scarecrow and then Dorothy. They all needed something, didn't they? The cowardly lion needed what? Courage. 
What about the tin man? Heart. The straw man. Scarecrow. A mind. A brain. And Dorothy, she just needed to go home. (laughs) Folks, they got what they wanted because they hung together as friends. We need to hang together. Secondly, uh, we need intellectual support. People that make us think, that stimulate us. Uh, Do you have people in your lives that make you think, that challenge you to think beyond where you're at? Emerson said this, he said, A true friend is someone who makes you do what you can do. Hmm. In other words, they bring out the best in you. And finally, you need a friend who will offer spiritual support. Build up your spiritual life. They draw you closer to Christ rather than further away. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us spur one another on towards two things, love and good deeds. And that's what 1 Peter is about. As we embrace God's grace, we may suffer, more than likely we will suffer, but it will increase your faith and you will continue to live good and right and holy lives. But folks, you can't do it alone. You need a model who inspires you. You need a mentor who advises you. You need a partner who something you, uh, assists you. You need a friend. (laughs) And you need a friend who supports you. You want to live out God's grace in your life and embrace it? The challenge is to surround yourself with these kinds of people. Here's the biggest excuse that I hear. Dennis, I just don't know enough. If you have been a Christian for two days, you have something to offer a Christian who has been one one day. Would you, would you look for these kinds of people in your lives? Would you become that to somebody? You want to have a good friend? Be one. You need others in your life, linked up, hand in hand, to live out this grace.